The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 83, a song, a psalm of Asaph. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one constant. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gebal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot, Selah. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeev. Yes, all their princes like Zeva and Zamuna, who said, Let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. As the fire burns the woods, and as the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest, and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish, that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 3. We're moving right along in Deuteronomy. We're burning it up. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This is entitled, The Defeat of Og, King of Bashan. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people to battle at Edrei. And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, of the Amorites who dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all of the region of Argov, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. And at that time, we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians called Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites called it Senir. All the cities of the plain, all the Gilead, and all Bashan, as far as Salka and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? 
Nine cubits is its length and four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. At times, I have to stop and wonder if the passage that I'm evaluating for you is being given proper treatment concerning the pictorial or typological patterns that I'm making. I have to ask, does this really fit? Or am I simply making things fit what I want it to say? This is especially true for me in the Numbers 21 sermon where Sihon and Og were first described in Israel's victory over them. I've really stressed as to whether the typology was correct or not. At other times, the typology has seemed so clear that it's hard to miss. It simply jumps off the page and announces itself. One good example of that is the typology of the Jordan picturing Christ. The Jordan flows from Mount Hermon to the Salt or Dead Sea. In order for Israel, or indeed anyone, to enter the land of promise, it must be through the Jordan or Christ. The picture is so obvious and everything associated with it is so certain that it doesn't really require any stress as to whether it is right or not. And yet, each time I have typed up some picture of it, meaning Hermon, the Jordan, the Dead Sea, and so on, I still have to ask myself if what I have been certain about is actually certain. Presenting something inaccurate means presenting faulty theology, and presenting faulty theology will lead to faulty doctrine. And that leads to unstable Christians who have a part of their walk, and maybe more than a part of it, on unstable footing. And each unstable step will lead one a little farther off the proper path. Our text verse comes from Psalm 68, it's verse 15. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Until typing this sermon, I had never stopped to evaluate the name Hermon. Despite assuming the typology, I hadn't actually checked it out fully. That actually troubles me thinking about it now, but the patterns seem so obvious that knowing the actual meaning of Hermon never even came to mind. However, the mountain is first introduced into the biblical narrative in today's passage. Because of this, it became necessary to determine its meaning. Thankfully, and with a giant retroactive sigh of relief, it actually fits the typology of everything that you have been taught concerning it, the Jordan, the Dead Sea, and so on. If it didn't, the typology of at least a half dozen sermons or more would have to be reconsidered, all because I never checked the meaning of the name of a single mountain. But this will be true a thousand more times as we continue through Scripture. It is impossible to anticipate everything that will arise in Scripture in regards to such things. The fabric is too intricate and the weaving is too complicated to be able to guess all that the Lord has put in his word for us. So far, so good, though. The patterns have fit, the typology is matched, and the story continues to unfold so beautifully. What a treasure God has given us in this marvelous gift we call the Holy Bible. Yes, great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is, do not fear him. It's verses 1 through 11. Chapter 2 ended with the defeat of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Israel is being prepared for their crossing of the Jordan and into the promise that prophetically look forward to the destruction of the Antichrist, something which must come about at that time that Israel acknowledges Jesus as their true fountain of hope. But as we saw in the number of sermons, there were two foes to be defeated. 
The second of them is ahead of them on their trek to the promise. After defeating Sihon, Israel was in a place which made entrance into Canaan possible. However, with Og and his people holding the northern portion of Gilead and also all of the Bashan, it would be unwise to leave him untouched. In type and picture, the same is true for Israel of today. There are two foes who must be removed before they will pass into the knowledge of Christ and into the heavenly inheritance. Chapter 3 begins the details concerning this second foe. Verse 1, then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. Vanafen vanaal derek habashan. And we turned and we ascended the road to the Bashan. The verse begins with the simple word and. It is a continuation of the narrative, despite the chapter divisions which are later imposed on the text. Further, the words of the verse are the exact same as Numbers 21, verse 33, except that there it is in the third person plural, they, instead of the first person plural, we, here. Moses is exactingly recounting the narrative as it was previously given, but from a personal perspective. As is consistent, there is an article in front of the word Bashan. It says, the Bashan. The name signifies something like place of fertile soil. Israel was making its ascent to this spot. Verse 1 continues, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us. Vayetse Og melech habashan likratenu. And came out Og, king of the Bashan, against us. The king of this entire fertile place brings himself against Israel. Here, as in Numbers 21, Og is said to be king of the Bashan. His name comes from Uga, which is a round baked cake. That comes from Og, which means to bake. The picture we see is one set in opposition to Israel. Obviously, he then is to be destroyed. The Uga, or baked cake, is seen seven times in the Bible. It is that which nourishes and sustains life. One can see that in denying Israel access to this fertile place and standing in opposition to them, a picture is made which will be more fully developed. For now, not only does the king not come out as if he was a friend, but rather because he will stand against Israel, it will be, verse 1 continues, he and all his people. Who? Vekal Amo, he and all his people. Based on the size of the Bashan, one can assume that this was a very large force. They gathered from the entire area of the Bashan in order to destroy them, knowing already that Israel had destroyed Sihon. As this was so, they would not only have whatever weapons they previously possessed, but they would have accumulated those of Sihon's army, they would be battle-hardened from the recent fighting, and they would be extremely confident in their capability to fight the next foe that came before them. Thus, Og mustered all his people. He could do no less. He then came, verse 1 continues, to battle at Edrei. La milchama Edrei. To battle at Edrei. Og led his entire force out to meet Israel at Edrei. Edrei means something like mighty. Despite the name implying the great force which has arisen against Israel, the Lord was shown to be more powerful. At that time, he had good news for his people. Verse 2, And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him. The words are almost an exact repeat of Numbers 21, verse 24. Again, the only difference is that it is in the first person here rather than the third person of Numbers 21. It would be reasonable for an army to fear such a foe. The description of his physical size, which is coming in the verses ahead, along with an army which consists of all of his people throughout the Bashan and in an area filled with strongly defended cities, 
one might expect fear and trepidation on the part of Israel. But the Lord told them that it should be otherwise. Verse 2 continues, For I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. The outcome is assured, and the Lord conveys it in that way. Ki ba natati, for into your hand I have given. All Israel has to do is to engage the enemy. The Lord has worked out the details in advance for them to find complete victory. In defeating the army, they are then to complete the task by also destroying it entirely. Verse 2 continues, You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. Israel did not just defeat Sihon, they destroyed him and his entire army to the last man. None were to be spared so that there could be no remnant to later make a claim against the land. And just as was promised, it also came about, both from the Lord's assurance and from Israel's obedience. Verse 3, so the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. The verse here is similar in thought to Numbers 21:35, but it is worded quite differently. It is, again, in the first person instead of the third person. Also, in Numbers, it said, so they defeated him, meaning Israel defeated Og. However, here, the credit is given to the Lord first. So the Lord our God also delivered. Only after that are Israel's actions then mentioned. Further, in Numbers, it mentions the sons of Og. Here, that is left out. Rather, it simply states that there were no survivors remaining. The victory was complete because the Lord so ordained it, and Israel complied with the Lord's directives. This was not only true with the army itself, but all of Og's kingdom. Verse 4, and we took all his cities at that time. Og ruled over an entire area filled with cities. The area not being very large and with no access to the sea would seem to not be fit for many cities, and yet throughout the years it has been noted by those who visit the area that there are an exceedingly large number of ruins there. Israel, after destroying all of the men in the battle, went about taking those cities they left behind, and Moses says, verse 4 continues, there was not a city which we did not take from them. Despite the difficult terrain and the description of the cities yet to come, Israel was able to take and possess every single one of them. In total, they numbered, verse 4 continues, 60 cities. In his book, The Giant Cities of Bashan, dating to 1867, Josias Porter notes the size of the area and that there were the remains of at least 60 walled cities and a great number of unwalled towns still there. To this day, one can go on Google Maps and view them from a satellite view. It's something that I've done because when I was preparing to go to Israel, I should, well, I should have come back two days ago. Hitiko didn't pick me up from the airport, did she? <laughs> anyway, I was supposed to be there. I went and I looked at all of these cities. Which ones are we going to spy out? Which ones are we going to sleep at? And etc. That didn't happen, and that's okay. Therefore, the account stands as not only possible 60 cities, but factual Israel took over these cities after exterminating the inhabitants. These are next noted as being in, verse 4 continues, all the region of Argov. Here's a new word translated as region, chevel. It signifies a cord, rope, or measuring line. It comes from chaval, meaning to wind tightly as a rope is wound. As it is a measuring line, it speaks of a region as if measured off. Another new word is the place itself, Argov. That comes from regev, meaning a clod of the earth. Thus, the name means stony, rough, or rugged. 
This is the same place referred to as Trachonitis, meaning the rugged or stony region in Luke 3 verse 1. This location, Argov, will be found only here in Deuteronomy 3 and in 1 Kings 4 when speaking of this same location and which mentions these same 60 cities which were captured and remained in continuous use at the time of Solomon. The entire location is then further defined as, verse 4 continues, the region of Og in Bashan. There is a progression of thought in this one verse which appears to be an inked celebration of what occurred. First, it states what occurred in the positive and in the singular, and we took all his cities. Then it next states it in the negative and in the plural. There was not a city that we did not take from them. It then sings out 60 cities. After that, it mentions the region in which this occurred, all the region of Argov. And then it resoundingly shouts out the final glory of the victory, once again speaking of the singular person, the kingdom of Og. In Bashan. Next, to show the exemplary nature of the victory, the cities themselves are described. Verse 5 All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. The 60 main cities are described as if by an eyewitness, which Moses surely was. He is recounting the state of the towns for posterity to know the greatness of the victory and to give assurances to Israel that any such fortifications in Canaan will be equally conquerable. In this, he uses a word, gaboa, meaning high, which has not been seen since Genesis chapter 7. There, during the flood of Noah, it said, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The word signifies high and exalted. Further, the Hebrew reads gates and a bar. Each city would have two doors which would form a gate, and then a large bar would go through holders on the doors to form an almost impenetrable wall. Despite this, and despite the other fortifications, Israel, because of the Lord's hand being with them, was able to conquer them. Nothing was too high for them to attain. They conquered all 60, verse 5 continues, besides a great many rural towns. This is a new word, parazzi, or hamlets. These would be little towns, maybe surrounded by any rocks cleared from fields, or with low walls to keep in livestock, but not used as protective walls. The houses would probably be centrally located with the fields outside of any stone borders. Each of these would have had numerous livestock and probably sizable stores of food when they were taken over. And it says there were many of them. Of all of these cities and towns, Moses says, verse 6, And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. The translation does not give the sense of the Hebrew. Instead of the men, women, and children, it says, utterly destroying men, the women, and the children. It thus provides an emphasis that is missed by most translations. The women and the children were not exempt from the destruction. As this is so, the words require further explanation. In Deuteronomy 2, concerning Sihon's kingdom, it said, We took all his cities at that time, and we utterly destroyed the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left none remaining. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities which we took. Both there and here, I'm giving you some repeat from last week, the word haram, or devoted to destruction, is used. It signifies that the devotion was required by the Lord, and the obedience of the people was followed through with according to the Lord's word. 
though it seems overly brutal to our sensibilities, that is irrelevant to what the Lord determines. He creates and he can dispense with his creation in whatever way he finds appropriate. As these are Amorites, they had been given the full measure of time to seek the Lord as he conveyed to Abraham. I read this last week. I'm repeating it now. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The destruction of the Amorites was ordained for when their iniquity had reached their full measure. That time has come, and Israel became the instrument in the Lord's hand to accomplish his judgment upon them. Now, before I go on, the world is now ripe for God's judgment. He's been merciful. He has withheld his judgment on the people of the world, and we have continually turned away from him, and we're doing so more and more and more with each passing day. If anybody thinks that what you are seeing in these sermons from Numbers and Deuteronomy and will be seen later with the killing of men, women, and children is bad, you wait until you see the devastation wrought upon the earth, which is coming, I believe, soon to a world near us because of our faithlessness and our, our, the wickedness of our hearts. The Lord is just. He is loving, but he is just, and he must judge. Despite the haram of the people, the Lord allowed the property and the belongings to be spared. Verse 7, but all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. Like last week with Sihon, at the allowance of the Lord, all the possessions of the people were not set apart as haram. This would have been no small amount of livestock and agricultural goods, along with whatever else the people possessed. At times, such things were set apart for destruction. When that was mandated and not followed through with, the anger of the Lord would turn against Israel. They were never exempt from the same punishments as the people they encountered, with the exception of being kept as a people because of the Lord's covenant with them. In the end, obedience to the word of the Lord is that which is highlighted as of the highest importance all the way throughout Scripture. Verse 8, And at that time we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. Here is a summary statement of all of the land which was taken by Israel from these two kings. It is stated as going from the river Arnon all the way to Mount Hermon. As we have seen in earlier passages, our known comes from Ranan. It signifies to give jubilant, ringing cry, and thus rejoicing. Hermon, or as it's pronounced, Hermon, is introduced here. And it will be seen using this name 13 times in scripture. The word comes from the same verb used in verse 6, Haram. It speaks of designating something to the afterlife, like the people here were, to the thing that is designated in this way, or keeping that thing for something sacred. It is the same idea as the word harem that bears the same meaning. The women of the harem are sacred to the king. Thus, Hermon means sacred. As it is the name of a mountain, it is sacred mountain. It is a fitting description of heaven from which the Jordan or descender, meaning Christ, flows from. One can see the marvelous picture here of the land of Bashan, the place of fertile soil. At one end is rejoicing, at the other end is the sacred mountain, and flowing alongside it is the descender. Here is a picture of life with Christ in view. 
There is rejoicing. There is the fertile soil of the word. There is the coming of Christ from the sacred mountain, meaning heaven, and descending to the earth. If one simply crosses over Jordan, the descender, meaning Christ, going through Christ, there is access to the land of promise. With that typology understood, the narrative continues. Verse 9, the Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites call it Senir. Here the Sidonians are introduced. Their name comes from Sidon or Sidon, which means fishing or fishery. The Sidonians called the mountain Sirion or sheeted with snow, while the Amorites called it Senir, which is believed to mean glittering breastplate of ice. It will be given another name, Sion, S-I-O-N, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 48. That is probably a shortened form of Sirion. That's my guess. The reason for including these words appears to be as a historical and geographical note. The mountain forms a natural boundary between several nations, and so the names are given as clarification now for when they will be used elsewhere, both in Israel's history and in Scripture itself. Sirion will be mentioned again in Psalm 29, verse 6, and Sinir will be used in 1 Chronicles, the Song of Solomon, and Ezekiel. The King James Version will mistakenly use the word Sion, S-I-O-N, in Psalm 65, verse 1, when speaking of Zion, Z-I-O-N, thus adding another error to its translation. Now, just so you know, in the New Testament, the King James Version translates Zion as S-I-O-N because of the Greek, but in the Old Testament, it's Z-I-O-N because of the Hebrew. Everybody got that? But whoever did the translation of that psalm incorrectly put S-I-O-N, speaking of Zion, and so they have an error in the translation. With the borders designated as the Arnon and Mount Hermon, another general description is seen with the words of verse 10, all the cities of the plain. Here is a new word, Mishor. Anytime you see a new word, we talk about it because there's a reason for it normally being introduced at a particular place in the biblical narrative. It signifies an even place, like a plain. It is then figuratively used at times to speak of uprightness and justice because you are on the level. Got that? We'll talk about that later. Verse 10 continues, all Gilead and all Bashan. Both words are actually prefixed by an article, the Gilead and the Bashan. Thus, they refer to locations, not cities. Gilead means the perpetual fountain. Bashan, as we saw, means the place of fertile soil. Verse 10 continues, as far as Salka and Edrei. Salka is first seen here, and it means walking. Edrei means mighty. These are both, verse 10 continues, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. These cities would be those furthest out in the regional areas, and so they stand as representative of the border regions of what was previously the kingdom of Og in Bashan. He is especially highlighted because of his genealogical relationship to another group who are again brought into the narrative, verse 11, for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Again, as was seen in chapter 2, the word is Rephaim. Instead of giants, it should be translated just as it says, Rephaim. It is speaking of the exceptional size of the people from which he came. Their large size was probably the product of special inbreeding. I defended that in the Genesis 6 sermons. This would seem most likely because there is a Rephaite in 2 Samuel 21 with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. This is a particular genetic defect or hereditary syndrome known as polydactyly, 
Og was the last of them in this area, but not everywhere, as they appear again in Canaan, and of whom the Anakim were associated. What their great size is actually attributable to is not stated in scripture, but I assure you it is not from sleeping with angels. These were normal humans who were genetically larger than others. Of Og, the following is provided. Verse 11 continues, indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. There is a great deal of speculation on what is being said. Some translate it directly as given here. He has an iron bedstead with the given dimensions. Others say that this is actually speaking of his sarcophagus, which is a very distinct possibility. Other suggestions have been made concerning both the material, instead of iron, it's the basaltic material that things are made of in this particular area, and what it is fashioned into. The word is eres, E-R-E-S. It comes from an unused root, meaning to arch. It is translated as couch or bed throughout the Old Testament. If it is a couch, and as he was a king, it very well could be speaking of a large covered place where he sat as a throne. Charles Ellicott writes of such a throne that was discovered in his time, which was back, I think, in the 1800s, and which was close to the same dimension. So that's another distinct possibility. Verse 11 continues, Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Rabbah, or as it said in the Hebrew, Rabat, is now introduced into scripture here. It comes from the verb ravav, meaning to become many or much. Thus, rabah means great city. What appears to be the case is that the Ammonites either captured this in a previous battle, they got it from Israel after Sihon's death and took it to their country, or something similar to that. However they got it, it became a piece of war spoil, so noteworthy that it is recorded here, showing that it was well known to exist and a point of somewhat awe or pride on the part of those who possessed it. The reason for it being so noteworthy becomes obvious from our final words of the day. Verse 11 finishes with, nine cubits is its length and four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. Understanding that this may or may not be a bedstead, it does not mean that Og was 13 feet tall. It is simply referring to whatever he sat, lay, or reclined on. That was, but he may not have been. He was obviously a big guy, and he had big things around him. The point is that he was defeated in battle, and therefore the size of that man was not the main factor in winning such a war. The Lord is. As an interesting note, the dimensions are specifically given in Scripture, and so we are asked to look at the numbers for clarity. Of the number nine, E.W. Bollinger says that it is akin to the number six, six being the sum of its factors. Three times three equals nine, three plus three equals six, and is thus significant of the end of man and the summation of all man's works. Nine is therefore the number of finality or judgment. And then, of the number four, Bollinger says, it is the number of things that have a beginning, of things that are made, of material things, and matter itself. It is the number of material completeness, hence it is the world number, and especially the city number. It is rather incredible that the two numbers fit so well with finality and judgment of Og and his kingdom, and that the bed ended in Rabat, or great city. For now, in Deuteronomy, Israel trusted the Lord, the Lord delivered his enemies into their hands, and they were able to defeat them because of this. We bear the shield and by faith head in. We gird ourselves with truth as we seek the reward. 
We have a helmet of salvation for the battle to win, and in our hand we carry the Spirit's sword. Yes, the Word of God is the instrument by which we fight, and prayer is the line to our side's head. Upon our feet is the gospel of peace, as is right, and we have prevailed in the battle. The enemy lies dead. The spoil is piled high from the battle of which we fought. There is great reward for those who entered the fight. On behalf of the Lord, the battle was wrought, and the rewards piled high are a beautiful sight. Our second thought today is types and pictures. As we saw in the Numbers 21 sermon, and which was given more detail in this passage, Og is typical of the false prophet of the book of Revelation. He is the king of the Bashan, his name coming from Uga, which is a round-baked cake. That comes from, as I said, Ug, which means to bake. He is set in opposition to Israel. The Uga is that which nourishes and sustains life. In denying Israel access to Bashan, the fertile place, he, as typical of the false prophet, denies the people of God the truth and nourishment of the word. The battle of Israel against him was at Edrei which signifies mighty. Despite the mighty place chosen for this final battle, it is the Lord through Israel who defeats Og. It is even possible that the place was named because of the battle. We saw that many times in the book of Exodus. The region of the Argov is first mentioned here. It means stony. It also stands in opposition to the people, and it is something that must be defeated. If you remember, there was great highlight in the verse where the Argov was mentioned, focusing on the 60 cities as if they were the heart of that area. Those obstacles would reflect the condition of the hearts of the people before coming to Christ, an act signified by passing through Jordan. Such a condition of the people is actually prophesied about by Ezekiel. Here he says in Ezekiel 11, Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. The Lord even repeats this thought in Ezekiel 36, 26, which is dealing with our times right now in human history. After noting the victory of the battle, it then noted the scope of both campaigns against Sihon and against Og. They conquered all the foes on the side of the Jordan. They were the last foes to conquer before they were set to cross over. Likewise, both the Antichrist and the false prophet will be destroyed before Israel enters the true land of promise. The scope of defeating both these foes included from the Arnon to Mount Hermon, from rejoicing to the sacred mountain. It pictures a complete victory with heaven as its furthest border. It then noted all the cities of the plain. That introduced the word Mishur, a word figuratively used to speak of uprightness and justice. The condition of the people who's gone from wandering in the wilderness of disobedience to possessing the habitation of uprightness. Next, it mentioned the Gilead and the Bashan. They now possess the perpetual fountain, meaning access to the spirit and the place of fertile soil, meaning the truth of the word, which they have missed for the past 2,000 years. Also, the account notes the extent of those locations as being as far as Salka and Edrei. Salka is first seen here, and it means walking. Edrei means mighty. Both of these anticipate the state of a person at any given time. One can walk in the flesh or they can walk in the Lord. One can pursue his own might, or he can pursue the might of the Lord. In possessing the land through the defeat of these two final foes, 
Israel is walking in the land of the Lord and in the strength of the Lord. And finally, what is really most noteworthy is the connection between the dimensions of the bedstead that were recorded and a connection to that of mystery Babylon, of which the false prophet is so obviously connected to. The number nine is the number of finality or judgment. The number four is the city number. Og found his finality and judgment and his bed was taken to Rabbah, the great city. Mystery Babylon is likewise called the great city again and again and again in Revelation 17 and 18. It and the false prophet, like this foe of Israel, will find both finality and judgment. The patterns are wonderfully placed within scripture to show us in advance clues of what lies yet ahead in redemptive history for Israel. The review of Moses concerning the events of those two battles with Sihon and Og is to remind Israel that it is the Lord who brought them to where they now stand. And it is the Lord who offers them their final step in the long and meandering existence that they have had as a people. In this chapter, he will continue to describe this land in the verses ahead. He will speak of the rest offered to them on the other side of the Jordan, and he will then note his desire to cross over the Jordan with Israel, followed by the fact that he cannot do so. The entire chapter is one which speaks of a promise which cannot be earned through the law. And it is through the law that the Antichrist and the false prophet will make their deal with Israel, as is recorded in Daniel chapter 9. I hope all of you understand that. Israel is not right with the Lord. They will sign a peace deal with the Antichrist. It will be under the law of Moses for the last seven years, as prophesied in Daniel 9, especially verse 27, but from 24 through 27. This is exactly what we're seeing right here. The law stands against Israel, except as the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what the Gentiles learned and accepted 2,000 years ago. And this is what Israel as a collective has yet to realize. The law must die outside of the promise. That's Moses being pictured there. Moses is the law. He cannot enter the promise. Unfortunately, it is the law, not the grace of Jesus Christ, which has arisen in the hearts of so many people again and again throughout the ages. We see it in modern times with what is called the Hebrew Roots Movement and the Seventh-day Adventists and other such cults as that. It is the constant failing of human existence to simply trust God and instead to attempt to earn his favor through their own personal merit. Israel fought these battles, but the victory was found in the Lord, not in their effort. We either have fought or will fight the same battle, but it must be a battle of faith in what he can do, not in what we can do. The spirit of Antichrist and the teaching of false prophets exists in the world today. Together, they deny the Son. When we deny the Son, we deny the Father. When we receive the Son, we are adopted as sons by the Father. Israel is being prepared for her meeting with destiny, and each one of us has our own meeting to face. Let us receive the Son and his fulfillment of that which stands against us, meaning the law of Moses, and let us trust in the grace of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. He came. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. He was born under the law, which he gave to Israel, by the way, he was born without sin because his father is God and so no sin transferred to him. He is now capable of fulfilling the law. Can he do it? That's what the gospel narrative is for. 
It is to show that he did, in fact, live under the law perfectly without ever violating the law. He is now qualified, not only capable, but qualified to take away our sin in fulfillment of the law through his sacrificial death on our behalf. That is the doctrine known as substitutionary atonement. One dies for the other, and the substitution is made. Our sin is imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, according to the law of Moses. He took our sin so that we could be free from sin, but he had no sin of his own, right? So even though our sin was imputed to him, it was only an imputation externally, not internally, by his perfection. And so he came out of the grave having none of his own sin. What does that mean? All of the sin that we had put on him is buried. It is gone. It is nailed to the cross, the law of Moses, and the sin is buried forever. Not one ever, not two ever, not three ever, but forever. Okay? Jesus Christ did all of this for us. I had somebody just a day ago email me and say, well, I think you should reconsider your view on once saved, always saved. And he's, he actually, believe it or not, used the numbers sermon saying, well, see, these people were in the wilderness and some of them lost their salvation along the way. I said, you obviously haven't watched our sermons because you got the typology completely botched up. I said, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, guess what? It was never of grace, ever. Because if you have to keep your salvation, it means it's of works. And that's it. I said, you are not saved by anything but grace and you are not continued to be saved by anything but grace. I hope he starts watching these sermons and gets his theology right because that is a terrible thing to come at another person and say, well, you can lose your salvation. It's bondage and it is a lie. That's, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. So anyway, I've got a closing verse for you from Psalm 145. It's verses four through seven. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. It sounds like it's all the Lord's, isn't it? It's none of ours. We trust in him, and he does it for us. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Next week is Deuteronomy 3, verses 12 through 20. You are being given a great and lengthy test. It's entitled, Until the Lord Has Given You Rest. And that'll be our 10th Deuteronomy sermon. And I'll tell you this as I do each week. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. And if you fail to do so, your salvation isn't lost. You'll just lose a lot of rewards in the process, okay? Follow him, trust him, and do as he says. I said a moment ago as we finished the sermon that the law stands against us. Where is this verse recorded? Jesus forgave all our trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Where is that recorded? It's Paul. It's Paul. It begins with the C and ends with an Colossians. Colossians, that's right. Anybody guess what chapter it's in? Anybody? Chapter 2, that's right. And it's in verse... Anybody? 14. 1, 4. 14. Okay, there you go. Very good. 
You all did really well today. So proud of you. Don't forget that verse. I got a poem for you and we'll take communion. This is entitled, The Defeat of Og, King of Bashan. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan and Og, King of Bashan came out against us, he and all his people to battle at Edrei. He was making a royal fuss. And the Lord said to me, do not fear him for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. You shall do as I have planned. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands old king of Bashan with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining, until all his people were gone. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them, 60 cities, all the region of the Argov. The kingdom of Og and Bashan was destroyed in our wake. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars also. Besides a great many rural towns, our enemies we did swallow. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, showing no pity, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the livestock and the spoil, yes, all the looty of the cities we took for ourselves as booty. And at that time, we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, as they were known, who were on this side of the Jordan from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians called Hermon Sirion. The Amorites called it Sinir, so it was known. All the cities of the plain, all the Gilead and all the Bashan too, as far as Salka and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, we cut through. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants as they are known. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits its length and its width cubits four, according to the standard cubit. Pretty big for sure. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, here we are in your presence and we're coming to you uh, on behalf of the people that were mentioned at the beginning of this particular gathering, those that are sick and those that are having troubles and difficulties, and also those that we mentioned on Thursday night during the Bible study. And we would also like to lift up our president to you and to give him wisdom and strength and the ability to overcome the foes which he is facing as well. And Lord God, we certainly thank you for this wonderful passage that we've seen today and the truths that are in it, that you have not rejected Israel even in their rejection of you. And someday they will find this out and they will defeat the enemies because of your power, not their own, and they will enter into the land of promise and the rest that was promised since the very foundation of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. May that day be soon. We pray it will be, and we pray it in his beautiful name. Amen.